Why don't you turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. Ephesians, chapter 6. And uh, this is going to be our second part of what we're talking about in spiritual warfare. I think I'm going to take one more part, actually, after this, because I, I, want, I didn't want to rush through this too much. Because I think it's so practical and so important and highly theological, but highly practical. Theology is extremely practical. What you think about God and what you think about uh, the universe and how God acts and what he has done and how he has revealed himself affects, directly affects the way you live your life and how the condition of your heart will be. You know, there are, um, when we talk about spiritual warfare, oftentimes people talk about the miraculous as, 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 such as uh, demon possession or... Um, wizardry or something like that but what we're talking about simply is how do you live this christian life in a difficult world how do you live the christian life in a world where there is sin that abounds i mean every time i open the news i only see uh i only see pain and havoc and murder and stealing and then you see these clips and people playing this knockout game where teenagers go and find senior citizens and hit them and punch them and knock them out then you see murders on the other side and life is so um not counted as precious how do you live this christian life see even as you go as a christian and if, when you are saved and, and you're filled with joy when you first get saved you're so filled with joy because God has forgiven you and, you're, and you, you feel like that there is nothing that could be in your way, that God is there for you, and then reality starts to set in. Yes, you know the Lord Jesus Christ, but all of a sudden you realize that this life is not going to be easy. Sometimes you even doubt God's goodness. Sometimes the spiritual battle that you will, ex uh, that you will experience is that you doubt God's goodness. That you think that maybe God has forgotten you. That maybe, oh, he has saved me in the past, but it doesn't seem like I see his goodness now. All I have is trial, and all I have is persecution, and all I have is hurt. I don't see God's goodness. Does he still love me? Sometimes we misinterpret if we're not thinking in the way God would have us think. Sometimes we misinterpret difficulties and trials and we think because of the presence of trials and difficulties in our life, that must mean God doesn't love me or at the least, God doesn't love me as much as someone else. He doesn't love me as much as you. Your life seems to be all taken care of, but me, not as, not as much. You know what? Brothers and sisters, if you've known the Lord for any season of time, you know that's just not true. Everybody has their cloudy days, don't we? Everybody has their rainy days. Sometimes this spiritual warfare rears its ugly head in the form of wrong doctrine or wrong thinking. The way you think about God is not correct. The way you think about God is not correct. It is false to say, as many Americans say, uh, they say, well, I conceive of God in any way that I want to. God is the person who I conceive. And so I believe God in this way. And so then that must be true because I really believe it. That's not how God expresses himself in the scriptures. God has revealed himself in a certain way. And we ought to think of him in the way that he has declared. 
Just because you sincerely think of him in a, in a certain way doesn't mean that it's absolutely true. Sometimes you have difficulties in ministry. Sometimes there are folks in your ministry uh, that maybe in your discipleship or your home groups or that you're working with that folks, they just are not listening to the word of God. Maybe they just abandon the word of God. Maybe there's difficulties in family or there's disunity in the church or there's reliance on yourself. You keep trusting in yourself for strength rather than on Christ. Maybe you're just in sin. And your spiritual battle is you just keep succumbing to a certain sin over and over and over. Maybe you have, you're fighting with apathy. That you were saved and now I, it's just kind of old hat. I'm just kind of just doing the routine, you know. Going to church and now I'm just, just here. Well, the Bible says that God has given us all these riches, and I am so glad in Ephesians. He doesn't want you to live this way. In Ephesians chapter 6, and I'm going to read verses 10 to 17, but for this, uh, for this week, we're going to talk about verses 14 and 15 only, okay? I'm going to read the text just so we get the flow. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses, starting with verse 10, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. Verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up shield of faith, with which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in this passage, you can see verses 10 through 17, it runs the, the same theme. And if you were to ask me what my preaching point would be, it is this, that God gave this passage so that you would fight valiantly to bring glory to Christ in your life. That you would fight valiantly to bring Christ, bring glory to Christ in your life. And we know that what Ephesians has done, as Paul is writing from this jail cell, He's writing to the Ephesian believers and he says, even though you will suffer persecution, even though you will suffer mocking, even though you will suffer imprisonment and some of you even death and some of you even difficulty in life, I want you to be filled with this truth and I want you to be filled with the power that God gives so that you can face the cloudy days. He says, if, if you remember in Ephesians chapter 1 of God's triune love, that will never change. And when I say triune, what I mean by that is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians chapter 1, we know that God's electing love. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, he says. And so the truth that should govern your life in that is that his electing love towards me will never change. 
brothers and sisters, that may not change your situation that you're going through, but I tell you, it changes my perspective. And it changes my hope. That even if, you know, I, I love that song, Hallelujah, what a Savior, right? We sang. Uh, tempted, I love this line, right? He goes, tempted, tried, and then what? Sometimes failing. I feel like sometimes when I fail, when I sin, I feel like God doesn't love me anymore. And yet his electing love before the foundation of the world. See, this is not an amorphous, um, undefined, foggy kind of love. This is a definite, firm, foundational love that should root you, brothers and sisters. No, I'm loved. I am loved. And then we know that the, the Son purchased His people by His blood. We know that uh, all over Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1 as well, and that the Spirit Himself came and brought truth and brought light into our hearts. And now we embrace this truth and we're changed. We're never going back. Amen? I'm never going back to the old life. God has saved me and changed me. And he saved us from our past alienation. He's brought us in a local church, Ephesians chapter 3. He's given us pastor, teachers, and evangelists to equip us for the ministry. Ephesians 5, 18, he gives us the Holy Spirit and he tells us to be filled with the Spirit that is yielding to his word. And when we are filled with the Spirit, he allows us to live in these relationships as husbands and wives and children and employees and bosses to live those lives in a God-Christ-honoring fashion. And so now he's talking about this present fight. He's talking about now, when it gets hard, how am I to go out? And you got to think about Paul. He's sitting there in prison, and this isn't ni the nice prisons that we see here in, in the U.S., right? Where they have all these weight rooms and then basketball. And, you know, even in the white-collar prisons, there's a swimming pool, right? Uh, he's in a filthy Roman prison writing, and he sees these prisoner guards and these soldiers walk past all the time. And you know from the text and from Acts, he's sharing the gospel to these people because they need to be saved. And as he sees them, he sees all of their armor and he goes, you know what? That's exactly what a Christian is, but not a physical armor. He says spiritual armor. And we need to go out like that. And so he takes the metaphor of the soldier and he says, this is what the Christian is. This is what the Christian should be doing. And he says, we fight not like flesh and blood, not like the physical nature of fighting as the soldiers do with the spears and the swords and killing people. He says, you fight with faith. Notice he says here, you fight with what? Truth, verse 14. Righteousness, verse 14. Feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, verse 15. Verse 16, shield of faith. Verse 17, helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. So how do you fight valiantly to bring glory to Christ in your life? We remember that there were two principles, and I just say this by way of review. Verses 10 through 16 is to be, you, you are to always prepare, always prepare. Always prepare, brothers and sisters. When do you get to rest? You rest in glory. You never, you never abandon your posts. 
You have to be always alert and vigilant. You have to, verse 10, harness your power that is to depend on Christ. Verses 11 and 12, you are to know your enemy that is to know and be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And he continues on and he talks about in verse 13, he says to stand firm. Verse 14, he repeats the same command. And in 14 and 15, all the way down to 17, we're going to see this next point. First is always prepare, but secondly, never yield, brothers and sisters. Never yield. Never, never, never yield. I'm reminded of Winston Churchill when, uh, in, during, uh, when Nazi Germany was attacking them and bombing them, and they would always have the bombing shelters underneath. And he said to Britain at that time, he says, never, 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 never give up. Amen? Now, this is not going to be something that you could fight in and of yourselves, brothers and sisters. The devil is strong, right? The devil has power. He has his wiles. He has his schemes to mess with your mind and your heart. And no one is excluded from these attacks, right? Every Christian will be attacked in this way. And so he says now, never yield. And he says in these terms, stand firm, therefore. This is your call. Verse 14a. Stand firm, therefore. And this is what I love about what, this, what Paul is telling us. He says, therefore, because Christ is your power, because you know the onslaught of attacks from the enemy. Remember, we're supposed to know the schemes. Because you have the armor of God, he says now to stand firm. And the text simply means to hold one's ground. Okay. Here, we also, that's also used in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you and also you received, in which you also stand, by which you are also saved. Now think about this. Victory, as defined by Paul, okay, is not taking on the government and changing laws. Victory defined by Paul is not casting out demons because now you have this new power. Victory defined by Paul is not uh, being the instrument to save millions of people. Praise the Lord, right? I don't have to be compared to a Spurgeon or a Whitfield or those great preachers of old. Being victorious in the Christian life is simply to stand firm. I'm still standing despite all the attacks on me. Now, what does that mean? Is it a physical standing? Of course not. Of course not. He is using this metaphorically. What, is standing, what does stand mean? And I think, I think what he means here, and we're going to see here, is that you, the Christian... Despite all difficulties, despite all problems, despite doubts, despite fears, despite attacks from within, despite attacks from without, still believes in Christ. That's it? That's it! Do you still hold firm to him? Do you have to be some great and stupendous Christian? Who gets on TV and shares a gospel. No. Just stand brothers and sisters. Stand in the faith. Look at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. 
We remember verse 5, uh, chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. Listen to this, brothers and sisters. Verse 4, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. For whatever is born of God, that is, those who have come to know Christ, you have received regeneration, you have new life, okay, overcomes the world. How? By bombing, uh, by bombing buildings, by creating an army, by having protest signs and attacking uh, the government, by having a million-man march. No, what does it say? It says here, this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is the victory, John? What overcomes the world, John? What is it? Is it something so spectacular? No, he says simply, our The fact of the matter is, here is the beautiful thing about the local church. That whatever attacks her, there are still believers in Christ. I still believe. I still believe in Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you still believe in Jesus, you have overcome the world. It, has show, it shows God's power. What could possibly cause you to still believe? Right? I think sometimes folks will look at your life and they'll say, what possibly, as you're going through difficult things, why do you still have faith in Christ? Because he saved me from my sins. How could I abandon him now? Abandon him now? So what is standing firm? Simply, Remaining in the faith, still believing his promises, still trusting in him. Turn, turn back to Ephesians chapter six, still hoping in him, still believing he has your good in mind, still believing that he has a salvation secure for you in heaven, still believing that he is doing a work in you. Now, brothers and sisters, let me ask this question, okay? Because it has to be asked. Do you still believe in him? Do you still believe he's good? Do you still believe he saved you from your sins? Amen. Amen. Now, he doesn't just talk about what your call is, but he also talks about your weapons. And as he's writing from jail, as we said, Paul was loving on these soldiers. Imagine this, okay? In this day and age, you tend to share the gospel with those people you like, okay? Paul is sharing the gospel with people who has imprisoned him, okay? And any person who comes in his contact, they get a good dose of the gospel. And, and the way that they used to do that when they were imprisoned is they would take shifts. The soldiers would come and they would cuff themselves to Paul. Okay, So there would be a soldier and cuff to Paul. And as Paul was sharing, he would share the gospel with each of the, each of the guards. And you could say he had a captive audience. right? <laughs> and he would share the gospel and he loved them. 
And now Paul says, and he turns to the Christians, this is where we're at. You are soldiers. And so first he talks about having girded your loins with truth. Now we don't, we don't really say that, right? We don't say, hey, Mike, go gird your loins and let's go serve, start to uh, worship music. No. The, the, let's, uh, he says, girded your loins. The word there for girded means to prepare for a work or an activity. And it was the custom of uh, shortening the garment. They used to wear loose garments, uh, the soldiers would, and it was called a tunic. And underneath they would have a tunic and then this leather belt around them. And so when they're about to fight, what they would do is they would tuck their tunic under their belt so that their legs could move freely. Okay? Soldiers, uh, they would wear these tunics with holes for their head and their arms. The extra garment could slow down their mobility and agility. They can get tripped up if it was long and flowing. So they would hike it up. Okay? So typically before battle, it was tucked under the lev- leather belt. Now, so the belt is what it's called, uh, is pictured as with truth, okay? Girded with truth. The word there for truth means truthfulness, dependability, uprightness, reality. And so what prepares the Christian for battle is saturation and knowledge of the truth. Without it, he has unsure footing. He's going to trip up. You know, the Christian is simply not ready for battle. This battle is over what is reality. In other words, the Bible tells us to get our minds and our hearts girded and ready with truth, which is what God's reality is, right? Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And he's just basically putting a metaphor on the truth that he already taught. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, notice he says, as a result, as a result of what? If you notice in the verses prior, he says, he gives us um, prophets, verse 11, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. What are you equipped in? The truth. And so what happens is, as a Christian saturates their mind with the truth, learns the truth, grows in the truth, lives the truth, God's thoughts, God's hearts, where, where do you find that? Right here. Clearly, he gives it right here. You become like this, verse 14. We're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. In other words, I am ready for the onslaught and the philosophies of the day. I can actually discern and tell you if it's true or not. Why? Because I'm so grounded in the truth, I could tell a fake. When they, um, when they ask people, how do you determine what is a counterfeit? They don't really study counterfeit bills. Do you know that? And when we were in India, they were always passing counterfeit bills, especially all these cops. They caught all these cops, corrupt cops, right? But they were always passing these counterfeit bills. And the way they, the way they could test if it was real or fake is they didn't study the fake. They studied the real. They studied it so well that there was this, um, there's this kind of code bar that was right through the bill and then you see um, Gandhi's face on there. And then it was, it was printed on a specific paper, right? 
And so they would look at that and they would measure it up against to the fake and they could tell that it was fake. And brothers and sisters, how are you going to be ready for this world? You've got to be so familiar with the truth, so saturated, so marinated in the truth that you could tell when false doctrine comes into the church. You could tell when false thinking starts to grip into your mind. False thinking about anything, about marriage, about life, about child rearing, about working, about career goals, anything. What happens is when you have the mind of Christ and you are firm in the truth and ready for it, you are ready for the day, brothers and sisters. Then the question now becomes, what does gird your loins with truth mean? It means to prepare yourself with absolute commitment by learning, growing, and living in God's thoughts and mind and heart as revealed in Scripture. I want to know his heart and his mind, God's heart and his mind. It is a life saturated in truth and expresses itself in truthfulness. So you notice that they were prepared like... I love the Olympics. My kids and I are watching all the time, right? And I love the little profiles that they do on the athletes, right? Of all the hardships that they had to go through. Um, and all of the training that they had to go through. They prepared themselves. In fact, they, they're so prepared, they know how many steps they're going to take before the next hurdle. The swimmers know how many strokes they take per 50 meters, right? They, they count everything. Why? Because if they could drop the number of strokes, they know they're going to go faster, right? They focus on technique to shave off time by exact modifications. They watch their videos closely so that they could improve, right? As, even as Katie Ledecky, and she wasn't even using her legs as she was doing, as she was swimming, right? Many, they make themselves strong and lean. Now, the Olympics are great, and a, a gold medal is fantastic, but it is nowhere close to the importance of living a life for Christ. You cannot fight for Christ if you're not prepared in the truth of Christ. In other words, how will you know if what you believe is true unless you study and grow in Christ? The truth. We remember the text in Romans chapter 12. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. In other words, I, you, every person who knows the Lord Jesus has to continually have their mind renewed. Why? Because if it's not renewed, the Bible says you will be conformed, that is, pressed in by the world. If you don't keep renewing your mind with truth, the world will dictate how you should think. Oh, yes, it does. I, I, came, I came from a rough, rough uh, city when I was growing up. I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, when I was growing up, I listened to a lot of R&B and hip-hop. And in fact... I thought that was gone from my life, right? And it's funny, San Diego plays all old music. Have you noticed that on the radio, right? So I'm listening on the radio, 
and I hear a rap song I haven't, I haven't heard in over 25 years. And I'm repeating it verbatim. <laughs> and I go, whoa! And I stop myself. I said, how am I doing this? I need to turn that LL Cool J off. <laughs> right? Why? Because now I'm starting to think like him. Right? I'm starting to be conformed to the way he's thinking. And I'm getting in the groove. Right? Why? I have to be what? Transformed with truth. I need to be diligent with that. Now, how do you do that? You've got to be diligent. How do you get saturated in the truth so you're ready for this fight? You've got to be dedicated to first scripture reading. You've got to be in the scriptures. Ask God to help you. God, help me to be so marinated in the text that I know. You've got to be dedicated to the preaching of God's word and the teaching of God's word. Anytime that you have an opportunity to go, go. If you're tired, go. I remember even as I was growing as a Christian, when I first got saved, the times that I most didn't want to go are the times when I needed to hear it the most. And as soon as I went, even when I didn't feel like going, as soon as I went and I heard the saints sing, then I started, it dawned on me that I wasn't thinking rightly. I wasn't thinking the way God wanted me to think. I needed to start thinking his thoughts and his ways, right? Avail yourself to even uh, our, our fellowship times as we're together and we talk, to, uh, talk about the truth. If you want to be discipled, get into that, right? Get into those equipping times for the truth. Um, I was just encouraged uh, even last week, we were talking about how do you deal with sin and how do you deal with sin in others and what is the proper way you are to talk to others and how are you to supposed to respond. And I thought, I don't know about you, but I was refreshed. I was encouraged that, that we're going to take seriously the sin problem in our lives and we're going to help each other on this pilgrim path together. Now, that's what truth is. Having it... God's mind and God's heart as revealed by Scripture to prepare you for the fight. Then the breastplate. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate is a protective piece of armor. And it's supposed to protect you from blows and from arrows and from darts. Um, it was a strong sleeveless armor covered torso, it, which covered the torso. Many of it was by heavy leather sometimes it was made by metal to shape uh, to the shape of the body and it protected organs and lungs and intestines and the heart uh, it's interesting that in jewish thought um, the heart um, and the bowels the intestines right represents the mind and emotions okay so in jewish thought in the old testament when you see my heart yearns for you. It's really in the Hebrew text. It's my bowels, okay? My guts, right? My guts yearns for you. And that's the way they thought, that the seat of affection is in the guts and the seat of thought was in the heart, right? So that's the picture of it. And so what God would have you think and what ha God would have you believe is that this breastplate of righteousness is to protect, what? Your thoughts and your hearts as a picture as a metaphor. Because the enemy would have you what? He wants you to believe false doctrine 
rather than believe in Christ. The enemy wants you to be run, listen to me, he wants you to be run by false emotions based on the moment rather than right emotions based on the truth. He wants you to not trust in Christ, not depend on Christ, but to seek out your own sins of greed and pride and immorality and hatred and all manner of wickedness. He wants you to not forgive rather than forgive as Christ has forgiven you. He wants you to think that God has forgotten you and to feel that rather than the truth that God has numbered every hair on your head. So what is this breastplate of righteousness? Now, this righteousness is not the imputed righteousness, okay? Uh, imputed righteousness. Now, when I talk about imputed righteousness, this is the credited righteousness, okay? This is the basis of our salvation. Contextually, I don't think this is the imputed righteousness, and I'll tell you why, okay? Let me talk about what imputed righteousness is. The imputed righteousness is the perfect righteousness of Christ given to us in exchange for our sin. It is Christ's perfect life and death credited to our account because we are in debt because of our sin. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, because of what Christ has done in his life and in his death, the very person of Christ, the merit of Christ, all that he has done on the cross, when I exercise faith and I trust in him only, what occurs is all of the righteousness that Christ has is now credited onto me. And all of my sin is now placed on him. So that when God the Father looks upon me, he looks on me as having the imputed righteousness or the credited righteousness of Christ himself. I don't think that's what is being talked about here. Okay, And here's some reasons, right? That imputed righteousness is already on. Amen? Amen? No amen? I know I'm going to be... I, I, I was having a talk with uh, this guy before, and I, I was telling him, if salvation was really up to what I did, and I said, well, I know I'm saved, that would be arrogant and cocky and prideful. Why? Because I'm resting on what I've done. And I really think I've met God's standard, right? But if I say I am saved on the basis of what Christ has done, then it's no longer pride or arrogance anymore. It is attributing to Christ all that I need for salvation. It is saying I could never earn salvation. It has to be what Christ has done himself, right? But here, that righteousness for every Christian is perfect and untainted. When God looks at you, he looks at you legally, and he justifies you because of what Christ has done. But notice here... Uh, that is already put on. It's not given to you, so you don't have to take it on. But also, look at this contextually. Look at it in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 24. He says, put on the new self. Brothers and sisters, if you're saved, you already have a new beginning, a new self. Now this is practically, because you are saved, live this salvation out. And he says, which is in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness. And 
holiness in the truth. In other words, God wants you to live this way. And now Paul is saying, wear that breastplate of righteousness. Live practically righteous. So what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 6 is not imputed righteousness. It is practical righteousness. Growing in righteousness. Growing in Christ-likeness. Growing in obedience to Him and His Word. Growing in following God's thoughts and God's ways. Look at Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 9. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse, uh, look, look at verse 8. You were formerly dark, darkness. This is your old life. But now you are light in the world. Walk as children of light. Verse 9. For the fruit of the light consists in all what? Goodness and righteousness and truth. What occurs? He says the fruit of the light. When you have been exposed to the light and you embrace the light, that is the truth that is in Christ, okay? And you receive the truth that is in Christ. When you receive that, he says here, the fruit of the light, it's an interesting way to say it, right? The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. He says the effects of being and embracing the light that Christ gives, now you will live a righteous life. And then he gives another metaphor in Ephesians 6. Put this breastplate on. Now, how are we to take this? How are we to take this? What is this righteousness? It's godly, holy living based on the merit, worth, and person of Christ. Now, the breastplate of righteousness now means, because of that, right? It means to live in daily obedience to Christ. How is this going to protect you? Living in daily obedience to Christ. As a believer in Christ, if you continue in sin, it leaves you vulnerable. Okay? It's just like taking off your breastplate. Okay? It leaves you vulnerable to attack if you continue in sin. Vulnerable to thoughts of doubt. And you know what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters, right? If you have hidden sin and you continue on in it, you start to have thoughts of doubt. Vulnerable to loss of joy. Amen? Isn't that true? You are vulnerable. What? Your emotions. Remember what I'm saying? It's in your guts, right? Your emotions now are vulnerable to attack because you're not obeying God. You're not trusting in Christ's strength to obey Him, right? You're vulnerable to despair of your current situation. However difficult it is, and now, now I give up, God. Now I give up. You're vulnerable to despair. You're vulnerable to sin, to try and lessen the feeling of guilt. You ever do that before? Where you have sinned, and in order for you to feel less guilty, you try and sin again, so you don't feel it. And so you don't feel it for a couple seconds and then you feel the weight of the guilt and then you do it again and your emotions and your mind is not thinking clearly. That's why David understood this. He said, God, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Sustain in me a willing spirit. One commentator said it this way. Many, if not most, of the emotional and relational problems are rooted in a lack of personal holiness. In other words, you blowing up on someone usually is an indication that there's some disobedience somewhere else. 
Some people, some Bible teachers used to say, God is not concerned with your happiness. He is concerned by your holiness. I don't think that's right. As if they are mutually exclusive. I think it's more proper to say, God is concerned for your happiness by making you grow in holiness. Or as you grow in holiness, you grow in happiness. And brothers and sisters, isn't that true? You know that you have been exhilarated in the fact of doing God's will, God's work, knowing that you are forgiven. When you are actually obeying, you are in the best spot. Amen? You know you're most happy when you are most holy. We all know that this holiness isn't of yourself. You don't create it, okay? This holiness comes if you have received Christ as Savior and Lord. He has given you power to obey. And then when you obey, it is joyful. Even if it's difficult situations, amen? You are joyful. I remember a brother, he was in such difficult times at work and he had to stand for the truth. And he could lose his job over it, but he was joyful in the fact that he did it anyways. Right? If I lose my job or if I keep this job, praise the Lord, I'm okay. God is my joy. Just think, Christian, what is it that sends your heart to joys unimaginable? It is when you are right with God and you know why he created you and you're actually doing what he has called you to do and you are obeying him. Look at Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. And we'll end here because I wanted uh, I want to talk about this armor later on. Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13. Excuse me, we'll end this point here. Romans chapter 13 and verse 12. Notice it says here, The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and what? Put on the armor of light. Notice he's using the same imagery. Paul is using the same imagery here. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and it says here, make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lust. He's saying here, put on the armor of light. What is putting on the armor of light? Obeying him. Obeying him. So that you're not vulnerable to the attacks of God. I mean, of uh, Satan. Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. This last portion here. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shod your feet. Shod your feet. When we were watching the track and field, um, my daughter asked, what are those shoes and why do they have those, uh, they said, she said, nails that come out of it. Right? And if you've been around track and field or baseball even, you know that there's, there's our, um, cleats or spikes right to help you so that you would have your traction so that you would not lose your footing right? um, as a soldier sure footing was crucial one slip could mean death uh, sometimes the soldiers would put in their boots bits of metal 
uh, or nails to grip the ground, just like spikes, okay? Uh, the word there for shod your feet with the preparation, there's the, the word there for preparation means, again, this idea of readiness, ready for action. So good footwear allowed the warrior to fight, to parry, to climb, to attack. God desires for us to be ready at all times and not to be lax. And now he says, for the preparation, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel there is the good news. And he says, of peace, which accentuates this idea that now, before I was at war with God, and now I am reconciled with him. That's all that peace means. Now I am reconciled with God. I am right with God because of what Christ has done. And so the Christian, and uh, this is how we are to look at this, the Christian has sure footing for all that life brings when he or she relies on the fact that they are forever and irrevocably no longer hostile against God, but now at peace with him through the gospel. So here's the truth of it all, brothers and sisters. That when I stand and when the accuser attacks me, okay, because he's going to accuse me of all of the sins, and they're all true, right? The sins that I've ever done. What God is saying here is, gird your feet, put on the gospel of peace. And what he's saying is to be have sure footing to stand firm in the fact that you are saved forever and that God himself has nothing against you. In fact, there is not just a neutrality of the hostility of the past, but now there is pure and perfect peace with God. You are no longer to fear him. Amen. And so we end this in Romans chapter 5. Uh, turn with me here. Romans chapter 5. I'm going to read this text because now you're going to see the parallel of what Paul means to have your feet shod with the gospel of peace. It grounds you, brothers and sisters. We, I remember um, we had a brother here uh, who used to disciple another brother who wasn't sure he was saved. He was always guessing. He was taught a faulty, faulty doctrine where if he sins, he thinks he lost his salvation. And then if he does good, he thinks he gains it back. And then he loses it. And, and he was always unstable. It wasn't until this brother unfolded the truth of the gospel of peace that he was able to stand firm. I know folks like that. They're just not, they don't have that assurity. Notice in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, not by works, notice, by faith, we have peace. There it is, okay? With God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace, here it is, in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. What? is it that will help you stand brothers and sisters what is it that'll help you attack that'll help you stand firm against the attacks of the devil 
Attacks of the accuser. Attacks of the slanderer, he's called. Who slanders his, uh, the saints day and night, the Bible says. The devil goes to God and he says, look at what he did. You call him a Christian, look at what he did. And the Bible says he slanders us. But the gospel says, and Christ says in Hebrews, that he forever intercedes for his saints, brothers and sisters. You can stand in the gospel of peace and know that your standing is firm. My salvation is sure. I am no longer an enemy to God. Amen. So fight, brothers and sisters. Fight. He's given you all these things. Stand firm. Keep believing in Christ. Keep believing in his promises. Keep trusting in his word. He has given you all these things. These attacks are normal. I hate to say that, but they are. They're normal. Mature in your fighting. Can I say that? Get better. Get skillful. Be more discerning. Grow in the word. And he will help you. Trust that he's already done the work. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that we can trust in all of these weapons you've given us. And and we know they're all sourced in you. They all come from you. We know we could trust in you. Thank you that you have, you cause us to stand. Even the weakest Christian, you pick us up and you cause us to stand. Thank you for your strength. Thank you for helping us through this, we pray. Give us strength for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.